0: The following program is sponsored No Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy.
1: Prayer allows us to cast our cares upon God, and then prayer recasts the world around us theologically. We start getting God sized solutions to those problems, and as we turn our panic into prayer. God turns our prayer into peace and fear becomes faith and doubt becomes confidence.
0: We could dispel our fears and calm our worries in just minutes. Who wouldn't want to experience that? Well, prayer isn't a quick fix, but practice daily, communion with God allows us to receive His peace, power, and perspective. And today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy teaches about the power of prayer through a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we face life's challenges, God is there to replace our fear with faith and our worry with hope. Now, here's our teacher, Philip DeCourcy.
1: When life brings you to your knees, you're at a good place, because then you can pray. And that's one of the best things you can do, because knees don't knock when you're kneeling on them in prayer. And so this is what Paul's going to teach us, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What a wonderful word from God for days of trouble and terror. Now, these are serious and scary times. We've already acknowledged that in our opening few messages. I mean, added to the moral direction of our country, you have Islamic terrorism both abroad and now increasingly at home. And these are scary and these are serious times and we wonder and we worry when the next random attack is going to take place. And it's scary. But here's the wonderful thing. If we get on our knees, knees don't knock when you're kneeling on them. And according to Paul, you can be anxious for nothing, prayerful in everything, thankful for anything, and as a result the peace of God, the hush of heaven will guard your heart. So let's look at this text. Three things. If you're taking notes, the first thing we see is panic prohibited. Panic prohibited. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Paul communicates here that anxiety is unbecoming of a Christian. Jesus himself Echoes this back in the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25 to 34, where he says to his disciples, don't worry about tomorrow, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. Your heavenly father knows the things you have need of. You seek first the kingdom of God. You take care of God's business and God will take care of your business. And I stop worrying. What are you children stressing about, says God? I'm your father. I'll take care of you. Like, what is being forbidden is self centered, faithless, counterproductive worry. That's what's being forbidden. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying and what I'm preaching. Paul wants us to be care free, be anxious for nothing, not careless. This verse doesn't allow us to shirk our obligations or our responsibilities. God doesn't want us careless. God wants fathers thinking about how they provide for their family. God wants mothers who are all over those children and thinking about their health and their safety and their upbringing. God wants pastors who think about the spiritual well-being and sanctification of their church. And God wants evangelists who think about the fact that today people are perishing without the gospel. And he doesn't want this to get to a state of paralysis and worry where we become ineffective and we lose our faith in God. Do worry in a good sense, but don't let the good worry become a bad worry. At what point do you give your children to the Lord? At what point do you give the business's prosperity to the Lord, having done all that you can legitimately do? You say, Lord, I leave it in your hands. This is your business. These are your children. We're your family. That's a good word. Paul wants us to be cur free, but not curless. Paul escaped under the cover of darkness one night to save his life, took responsibility. Paul ministered with his hands so that he wouldn't charge the churches. Paul took refuge in his political rights and claimed his Roman citizenship when it gave him protection under the law. He was cur-free, but not curless. He did what he needed to do to take care of himself. So let's not misunderstand this idea. Be anxious for nothing means you're irresponsible and irrational. You may have heard of the guy who was talking to his friend, told him, you know what? I have a mountain of credit card debt. Just lost my job. The car is being repossessed and the house is in foreclosure but I'm not worried about it. His friend said, that's crazy. You know what you mean you're not worried about? it." He said, you know what? I saw an advertisement in the paper the other day where you can hire someone to do the worrying for you. And I've met this guy and I've told him all the things that worry me. And the guy says, don't you worry about it. I'll worry about it. The guy says, that's amazing. I should meet this guy. Where is he and how much does he cost? The guy says, well, it doesn't come cheap. He's about $5,000 a month. Well, he said, hey, you've got credit card debt. You are no job. Your house is in foreclosure. How are you going to pay him $5,000 a month? He said, that's his worry. (laughs) That'd be nice if that was real life. But there's nobody exists like that. Don't be Googling that this afternoon, all right? But you get the idea. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if somebody would do the worrying for us? No, no, no. You've got to do your own worrying to a point where you do what you need to do But then you give it to God and you don't worry anymore. And Paul says, that's what I want. Be anxious for nothing. Secondly, we not only see panic prohibited, we see prayer promoted. Prayer promoted. Look at verse 6 again, the second part of it. Be anxious for nothing but, transitional adversative in the Greek, but pray. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Give thanks for anything. Pray, supplicate with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Look, worry and prayer are like oil and water. They don't mix. The absence of one is because of the presence of the other. People that don't worry are people that pray. Unburden your heart to God. Tell Him about your problems. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. it's a privilege. And the results of it is peace. And so Paul here is encouraging repeated, specific prayer. Pray about everything. So you're constantly praying about everything. So it's repeated and it's specific. You're supplicating. You're making your request made known to God. And then what you need to do is kind of perfume it, or salt and pepper it with some gratitude, with thanksgiving. Prayer allows us to cast our cares upon God. Psalm 55, 22, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. It's a wonderful thing. Prayer allows us to cast our cares on God, and then prayer recasts the world around us theologically. So we go and cast our care upon God. We start talking to God about the things that concern us, the things that worry us, the things that burden us, the things that are pressing in and crushing us. And as we talk to God, things get recast theologically. We start connecting God to those problems. We start getting God-sized solutions to those problems and those perspectives. And as we turn our panic into prayer. God turns our prayer into peace and anxiety becomes hope and fear becomes faith and doubt becomes confidence. You see, when we see and savor the God who rules over all, then according to Colossians 3.15, the peace of God can umpire our hearts, referee our hearts. Love that thought. You know, we start worrying, we think about God, we start thinking about the world theologically and God blows the whistle. A kind of referees go, okay, enough of that. No more worrying. Because I can do this and I can do that. And I am this and I am that. And here's the promises I've given you in Jesus Christ. And they're all amen. Whoop! Stop it. And the, the peace of God begins to referee and umpire our hearts. It makes us think theologically and see things theologically. In making our case before God, our anxieties lose their voice. Let me give you an insight on this I thought was very helpful by Leonard Griffith in his book on Philippines, This is Living. Listen to what he says. Too often we start to pray at the wrong place. Prayer should begin not with ourselves but with God. A conscious awareness that we stand before Him as creatures before the Creator, subjects before the King, servants before the Master, and children before the Heavenly Father. He says this, if we begin our prayers by thanking God for favors already received, we might never get around to cataloging our personal problems because the sense of God's goodness would act on our anxiety like sunlight on mist. Love that thought. Talking about this, he tells a story about an anxious college student in Boston who tells his friend that he's going to see Philip Brooks, the minister of Trinity church in boston well-known preacher and pulpiteer of that day and and his friend comes back and his roommate says well how did it go what did philip brooks say about your problem i says you know what he says i met with philip brooks and we talked and we kept talking and you know what the more we talked i actually never get around to telling him about my problem and i kind of left feeling good regardless And Leonard Griffin likes to use that story and say, that's what prayer ought to do. See, we go to God with our problem. We're anxious. We're concerned. Something is bothering us and burdening us. We go to God and we're going to talk to him about our problem. But remember, we're going to pray and we're going to give thanks. So we start talking to him about him and who he is and what he's done. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness here. Thank you for your grace over there. Thank you that new every morning are your mercies and great is your faithfulness. And you know what? Before long, we keep talking to God about who he is and what he's done. And you know what? We often leave feeling good, feeling at peace. And we never get around to talking about our problems because they've all kind of been dealt with like sunlight on mist. Do you get the point? Just tell me you're getting the point. I love that thought. That's what prayer does. When you go into the throne room of God and you really pray, and you grasp who he is, and you think about what he's done, and you give him thanks for his faithfulness, it at least, if it doesn't take the problem away altogether, it just shrinks it down to size, and you begin to go, you know what, God can take care of this. He has taken care of me. He will take care of me. And the peace of God follows. Now, we could leave that thought there, but remember, we're in a series on maximum security. We're coming to a passage like this because we're frightened and concerned about terrorism abroad and at home amidst a whole bunch of other things that kind of keep us up at night. So if prayer is important, then what can we pray for in the war against terror? I need to pray for the persecuted church, Hebrews 13.3 tells us to remember those who are in prison and certainly our brothers across the world and those who are in the wrong end of ISIS are being persecuted and butchered and murdered. I need to pray for the persecuted church. So do you. Number two, we need to pray for our civic leaders. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 3. Paul says, pray for kings and those in authority lifting up holy hands. We do need to pray for our leaders, for our president, for our government, that they will decide what they're going to do with this war. In fact, I just was praying with a man in our church who's now on deployment in Iraq. And I said, hey, Robert, what can I pray for you for this morning at church? You know what he said? Pray that our leaders will decide what they want to do with this war. His point was, I don't mind dying for my country. That's not my issue. I need to know what the objective is and then let us do the job. It was kind of a sense of frustration. We need to pray for our leaders that they'll know what to do and what way to do it. We need to pray, thirdly, for the spread of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Think about the Middle East especially. Think about countries like Syria and Iraq and Iran and Egypt and Israel and Jordan. Let's pray that the gospel will spread in these countries, even in the midst of all this hurt and horror. God works even in times like this. God can bring life out of death. We need to pray according to 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1 that God's word will have freedom. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122 verse 6. Paul would remind us in Romans 9, 10, and 11 as Gentile Christians that we have been grafted in by the grace of God. And it is through Israel that the covenants have come. It's through Israel that the Messiah was born. Our God is the God of the Jew. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, besides being the father of the Lord Jesus. And Paul warns us, as those who have been grafted in Gentiles, not to be arrogant towards God's ancient people and not to write them off either. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's the city of David. It's where Jesus will set up his earthly kingdom someday. Pray for that city as we think about this age of terror. Here's another thing pray for the soon return of the Lord Jesus. I mean, when John hears about and sees all that's going to happen as he gets the unveiling, the apocalypsis in Revelation. He looks at it all, sees it all. And when he's done, what does he pray? Even so come, Lord Jesus. The quicker, the better. I think you and I should pray like that. When we see the Middle East on fire, when we see the Middle East burning, it just reminds us, even so come, Lord Jesus. Prince of peace, upon whom the government is. Here's another thing. Pray for deliverance from evil, Matthew 6, 13. Here's another thing. Pray for your enemies, that's a hard thing to do. I had to learn that as a police officer in Northern Ireland. Matthew five forty four tells me that I need to pray for those who are against me. I need to pray for them, even when they're against me. I need to kind of always remind myself that there go I but for the grace of God. And Jesus loved his enemies, and Jesus loving me can help me love mine. But here's a thought I wanted to spend a few moments on. You can also pray against your enemies. Now, you say, Pastor, you just contradicted yourself. Well, I don't see it as a contradiction. I see it as a balance, a tension between praying for them and praying against them. And this is a theme in the Bible called imprecatory prayers. You can Google it, look it up, and do some thinking about it. To imprecate is to invoke evil upon or curse upon one's enemies. And you'll find this often in the Old Testament. A lot in the Psalms in the lament against the evil and the enemies that the servants of God faced. In Psalm 35, 6, Psalm 55, 15, Psalm 69, 28, Psalm 198. They're just all Davidic Psalms. David prays against his enemies. Now, what you're going to hear is someone say, Hold on a minute, Pastor. That's the Old Testament. We now live according to the ethic of Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, the golden rule, do unto others, you just have them do unto you, love your enemies. Jesus said it. Jesus was a very loving, gracious, kind, patient person. And on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, his enemies, for what they do. I get that. But I would suggest to you, this isn't just an Old Testament practice. What about Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 13 following, where he pours woe upon the Pharisees? Woe upon woe, where he curses them, he damns them, he criticizes them. That's the same Jesus that taught us to love our enemies, to pray for them. But in this case, he's praying against them. In Luke 18, verse 7, Jesus makes a comment after talking about the need that we need to pray persistently. And he talks about this woman that goes to the judge. He's not predisposed to help her. She comes back and back and back until this guy just gives in. Okay, lady, I want to do what you want me to do. And when you read that in Luke 18, the point of the story isn't God's like that. You've got to overcome his reluctance. You kind of got to badger him and beat him into really wanting to help you. No, the point of the parable is if this woman went to a human being and persisted in asking for something, eventually this man who's not predisposed to help her helps her. How much more will God, who's predisposed by his grace and covenant of love, help you? But here's what Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 7, lest I forget my thought. He says, And will not our Father avenge his elect? That's very imprecatory there, it seems to me. Will God not avenge his elect when they pray to him? What about Second Timothy chapter 4, and verse 14, 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, where we read, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. That's Paul. This guy, he did me harm. Lord, you repay him. Seems like an imprecatory prayer to me. And while we won't be there to see it in Revelation 6, verse 10, We certainly see that the tribulation saints pray to God that the blood of God's people would be avenged. Seems to me this idea of praying against your enemies is both Old Testament, gospel, and church era and beyond. I'd make that argument, but I'd always want to balance it. Err on the side of grace and in love, but don't rule out. If your motive is clear, your focus is right, don't rule out praying destructive prayers against destructive powers. Time doesn't allow me to develop this. I'll just tell you, if you haven't listened to my message on Psalm 55 in the Psalms series, I deal with this issue in Psalm 55, where David asks that God would confuse and condemn his enemies. And the language he uses in Psalm 55 in verses 9 and 15 is the tar of Babel where God confuses the people with languages and then the sons of Korah being swallowed up in death in Numbers 16, 31 to 33. And David is saying, and I think he's dealing with Absalom's treachery, Jerusalem is in upheaval. The kingdom is being threatened. This isn't a personal issue. This isn't about David justifying himself. This isn't petty. This is national, civic, social. This is kingdom-oriented. God, you need to do what you once did, confound them and destroy them. And I think there's a place to pray like that.
0: That's Philip DeCourcy sharing a balanced perspective on prayer. You're listening to Know the Truth, and today's message is called Get on Your Knees. It's from our current series titled Maximum Security. To purchase Generation. the complete series on Change CD, visit KDAA.org. We've been looking at some complex issues today, and Philip is back now to give us a solid biblical perspective, a perspective, by the way, he'll be weaving throughout this series. Uh, Philip, how should we respond to the threat of terrorism in our world today?
1: Well, William, when it comes to um, responding to threats and, and danger, um, I think there, there there can be two extremes uh, the, you know the pendulum can go in in a couple of directions on the one hand, I think people. Can ignore it, you know, and hope it goes away, and that and that solves nothing. The problem's still there, whether you ignore it or face it. And I think the other extreme is you can get fixated on it, and it disturbs you. It it, it robs you of of focus in life and joy in life. And I think what we want to do in this series, Maxim security, is help our listeners to center upon the fact that yes. There, there are real threats. Militant Islam poses uh, a real threat to our national security, to our freedoms, to our interests abroad, and certainly to the Church of Jesus Christ. But, you know, the psalmist reminds us our times are in God's hands. And so while we want to understand the times we're in, we're going to have to face the reality of the day in which we live. Let's come back to the, the hope, the security, the peace that we can find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really uh, where this, this uh, series is going to take us. When I was a police officer in Northern Ireland dealing with the terrorism that was posed uh, by the Irish Republican Army, I reminded myself that security is not the absence of danger. It's the presence of God. So danger is not to be ignored. It's not to be fixated on. It's, it's to be faced uh, with a resolute faith and confidence in Jesus Christ.
0: Well, that is Philip DeCourcy sharing his firsthand experience with terrorism and the peace that comes from knowing God. And this month, Philip is releasing his latest book based on our current series entitled, Take Cover. When you make a much-needed donation to know the truth, we'll put you on the list to receive one of the first copies that comes off the press. So make a generous donation today and request Philip's book, Take Cover. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. This month, you can also request an entirely free resource, the Take Cover bookmark that shares some of the key principles from Philip's new book. You'll be reminded to pray, praise, and pursue God daily. Ask for the Take Cover bookmark when you call 888-644-8811. I'm Wayne Shepard. Tomorrow we'll hear another message from our series titled Maximum Security. That's Friday on Know the Truth.
1: The housing market is pretty hot right now, so yes, even below average agents can put a home on the market and sell it. But are they getting you the most for your home? I'm here with Christy Moore of Moore Realty Services. Christy was just telling me a story that floored me. So many people like to brag they sold their house in one day, and I'm always thinking, how much money are you leaving on the table? We had a client in Arlington who really wanted to buy this particular house. We put in an offer with an escalation of over $5,000 over any other offer without a cap and a note statement that we would do whatever it takes to buy the home. They accepted another offer without even telling us, and when we talked to the listing agent, she said she doesn't negotiate deals. She may have left $20,000 on the table for her clients. It's a hot market, but the wrong listing agent can cost you tens of thousands of dollars without negotiating skills. How about you sell your home for the most money? Call Christy Moore because she will sell your house in 58 days, or she'll buy it. Call 866-404-5858. Certain conditions or exceptions may apply.